I, I got distracted while you were popping and started praying for your brothers. Hey, um, yeah, what's happened is it's got a short in it. Are we good? No. Hello? There we go. What do you think, Larry? Let's go for it. Okay, That'll we'll work. try it. If it starts popping again, we'll transfer you to this. Alrighty. If it pops, we'll swap mics. Okay. Alrighty, so turn in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, as you have heard. Don't be mistaken by the, the kind speech. What is actually happening here today is that you as a church are making sure you haven't made a bad investment. Uh, in, in, in a seminary student, making sure that I, I'm actually learning how to do this. Um, just a preview for this sermon we've got. It's basically going to be in three parts. I listened to both of Bart's former sermons uh, in this series, and I noticed a theme of noticing why is this important. You want to go ahead and use that? Okay. It's the devil. He's just messing things up. Okay, so this was going to work. Okay, perfect. All right, so there were three parts to the sermons that I listened to. First, for the about first third, you're talking about why this is important, why we're doing this. For the second third, kind of doing a summary of the book as a whole. And then for the last third, kind of hitting the high points. And so that's kind of what we're going to be doing this morning. For the last third, I'm really just going to zero in on the, the peak of, of the book as a whole, which is in chapter 30. Um, but before we, before we approach the word, I just want to pray once more. Um, so if you'd bow your heads with me. Dear my Father, you're... Your word says that all scripture is breathed out by you. And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And we, we look at your word this morning and we say, that includes Deuteronomy. And so, so as we walk through this book this morning, as we, as we come to the dinner table as a, as a family to, to feast upon your word, as, as the means by which you have given to us for the Holy Spirit to, to work in our hearts, in our lives, would we, would we not leave this place the same that we came in? Would we be transformed? Would we be able to leave this place with no other conclusion than that you met with us here today? So in your name I pray. Amen. So with your Bibles turned to Deuteronomy, each and every one of us have moments in our Christian walk that stick out among the rest. Um, when you got saved, obviously a big one. When you got baptized, another big one. And each of us have moments also where we say, in that moment, God taught us something significant. He worked on our hearts. He worked in our lives that were never the same after that. Believe it or not, one of those moments happened in my life while watching the news. I, in middle school and high school, I got really, really, really into politics. I'm not talking about politics from the pulpit. Um, but I was, I was watching late-night talk shows, uh, people debating on television. I loved it. I, I ate it up. And the, sh the host that night, who will remain unnamed, was speaking with an atheist who, who had come into his show, who was publicizing a new book that he had just released. And the atheist, thinking that he had the upper hand, asked him the question, how do you call yourself a moral person? How do you call yourself a good person? How do you say that God is good when you read the Old Testament? Do you, do you read what's in this? There's some, there's some hard stuff to which, to which the host replied, thinking he had the perfect answer, no, 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 that's the Old Testament. I, I worship Jesus in the New Testament. I think that is the worst possible answer he could have given. He might as well rip 70% of the Bible out and just thrown it thrown it out the window. 
Just this week, there was a debate between two pastors, who, who you, you would recognize their names if I told them to, talking about the question, should we or should we not unhitch our faith from the Old Testament? Not, not bashing the New Testament, but saying we should just focus on the resurrection. That should be the foundation upon which we build our Christian faith. And the problem with that is, I think if we do that, what we end up doing is we end up taking out the foundation that was laid for us to understand what Christ was doing. We, we, we lack something to understand what exactly Christ accomplished for us. And ultimately, I think we actually end up being disobedient to Christ because the day of his resurrection, what did he do? He, he appeared to the women at the tomb, right? We, we know that from the Gospels. In the end of the book of Luke, however, Jesus also appears on a road walking with a few of his disciples who, for some reason which we don't fully understand, don't even recognize him, so they're just walking with some random guy. And he begins to ask them, where are you going? What are you doing? Why are you sad? And they say, do you, do you not know what's, what's happened here in the last few days? Jesus, who we believe to be the Messiah, who is going to deliver Israel, died. And now some of his followers are saying that he's risen from the grave. And Jesus responds to them by, and I quote, in Luke, he says, And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Stop there for a second. That Moses, the name of Moses is mentioned there, which means, without a doubt, Jesus looked at Deuteronomy. He looked at Deuteronomy to his disciples and said, This is all about me. How did you, how did you miss this? His disciples then end up asking him to spend the night with him. They still don't recognize him for some reason, which we still don't understand. And while they're eating dinner, um, he breaks bread and they recognize him. And immediately he just disappears. Again, don't understand how that works. But when he does disappear, there's a quote there from one of his disciples. And they ask, they talk, they're talking to each other. And they say, did not our hearts burn within us? This is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. While he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. How awesome is that? Their hearts were burning when they looked at Deuteronomy. So that's what I'm praying happens for us today. So again, with your Bibles turned to Deuteronomy, quickly we're going to make our way through the book as a whole, just hitting some of the highlights, and then we're going to zero in on chapter 30, where Moses um, decides to have the peak of his sermon. In chapters 1 through 3 of Deuteronomy, what ends up happening for us is that Moses is recapping what, his, what you've already talked about the last few weeks. He's saying, hey, don't you remember this happened? Don't you remember God gave us the law? Don't you remember you rebelled? Don't you remember how God then led you 40 years in the wilderness. And so the beginning of the fifth book of the Old Testament, the fifth book of the law, as we call it, as you saw it on the video, begins with Moses recapping what's happened. And also, as you've talked about in Leviticus and Numbers, when the people of Israel disobeyed God, God told them, you are not going to enter the promised land now. Your children your children are going to be the ones who do this. And then also what you talked about, I believe it was last week in Numbers, when Moses disobeyed God, when Moses disobeyed God, he said, not even you. You're not even going to enter the promised land. I'm going to pick somebody else to lead my people there. So Moses is knowing that he's not going to enter the promised land. And now where we find ourselves 
not only textually in the fifth book of the Bible, but also geographically. The people of Israel are about, I looked at an atlas this week, they're about 10 kilometers from the Jordan River. They can taste the promised land. The milk and honey are literally on the tip of their tongue. And Moses knows that he's not going to enter in. So he knows that these are some of the last words he's ever going to say to the people of Israel. The president of my seminary loves to say the quote, last words are lasting words. Last words are lasting words. The last words that you say to somebody, the last words that you say before you die, they better be good ones. They, they better be good. And, and you're going to be very wise and meticulous about how you use your words. When I was in college in Auburn, we had the, the founding pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian, Frank Barker. He came and preached an evening service at our church in Auburn. And I don't know how much you know about Briarwood, but they're known for two big things, preaching the word very well and then also sending a lot of missionaries, a lot of missionaries, hundreds of missionaries. And he's, he's 87, 88 at this point, and he knows, almost without a doubt, that this is the last time he's ever going to be speaking to the people of Lakeview Baptist Church in Auburn, Alabama, before he passes away. His, his health was not doing well. For 30 minutes, this man hung onto a pulpit and just told us, don't stop. Keep going. There are three billion people who don't know about Jesus, and we have to go to the ends of the earth. This is what we're walking up on in Deuteronomy. The people of Moses, the people of Moses, the people of Israel know that Moses is giving them his last words, and he decides to use the first three chapters to recap. And then look at the, if you're turned there in your Bibles, in chapter four, the first verse of chapter four. Moses says to them, after, after going through this recap, and now, O Israel. Listen, if anybody had fallen asleep at this point, he's clapping his hands. Hey, guys, stop, stop, stop what you're doing. Listen to what I'm saying. This is important because what happens in chapter five is Moses literally goes word for word through the Old Testament once again, through the Old Testament, through the Ten Commandments. He goes through all ten commandments. He is reintroducing to them why this is important and what is happening. The next 20 ish 21 chapters are crucial not only because what they say they're mostly law spoiler alert but why and how they are there most scholars in the world right now agree on this this um, speculation that the book of Deuteronomy is organized like a political treaty I find this so, so interesting. So what would happen in the ancient Near East is that when a king would conquer a land and the first generation that he conquered died, he would write a letter or he would write a decree saying to them, hey, just FYI, this is who I am and this is who you are. I rule you. If you obey me, we'll be cool. Everything's fine. Well, you don't have to, you don't have to bother with me. But if you disobey me, I will wipe you out. This is very much what's going to happen over the next 20 chapters. God is saying, obey me, you will be blessed. Disobey me, and you will be cursed. And after the Ten Commandments, I love that, that we prayed this earlier in the service. I can't remember exactly who it was, but we talked about seeing the heart of God. What would God show us his heart? And he does exactly that. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Does that sound familiar? That is the heart of God. This is what he demands. And so after the Ten Commandments, and then this has come to be known as the Shema. It's a prayer in Judaism that is repeated often. What we have over the next 20 or so chapters is God then fleshing out what does this look like practically in the life of Israel. In chapters 7 through 11, what ends up happening is God just ends up laying the foundation through the words of Moses as who I am, who you are. Chapters 12 through 26, you can see that I picked up the speed a little bit. What happens is God ends up saying, hey, you're going into the promised land. You're you're geographically right there. You are so close. And so here is how all that you know, all this law, all this background information that I've been giving you, this is how this is going to apply in your new life. This is how I am to be worshipped. This is how I am to be um, glorified. This is how you are to eat. This is how you are to structure your lives. This is how you are to go about justice in the public square. And don't miss this. We often think that, at least I do, maybe I'm the only one, but I often think when I see Israel in my mind going to the promised land that they are just going into an uninhabited space. They just, they, just, they just cross the Jordan River and there it is, this land flowing with milk and honey. The reality is there are people living in this land who are then going to have to be wiped out in order for Israel to come into the promise that God has Given them. And so, what he is doing when he gives them this law is he's actually showing them how to live set apart, how to live as God's people. And this finishes in chapter 26. In chapters 27 and 28, what is commonly called the blessings and the curses, God then shows what will be the consequences based on if you obey me versus on if you disobey me. And, and I know this is my heart, at least. I'm, I'm just rooting for the people of Israel. Like, please, please just obey so that you don't have to go through the stuff that Moses is talking about is going to happen to you. So in tw- when we come upon 27 and 28, what we're saying is, please just talk about the blessings. Please don't talk about the curses. We don't want to know what happens if we disobey. But what Moses ends up doing in chapters 27 and 28, is he talks about the curses about 75% of the time. Why is he doing this? Because I, when, I, when I came upon this, these chapters, when I was reading through this book, I just thought, just, just dangle the carrot for them, you know? Just like make them run on the treadmill so they can figure this out and everything will be fine. But Moses knows who the people of Israel are. He's walked with them in the, in, in the wilderness for 40 years. He knows his own heart at this point, and he knows that they are incapable of obeying God to the level that he requires. And so in chapter 29, after the blessings and the curses, I'm going to pick up in verse 2. Moses says this, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. And notice this, this this is the foundation upon which chapter 30 that we're going to look at for a long time is laid. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Breaking news, Israel, you're, you're going to fail. 
This is what's going to happen. When when God is ushering you into the promised land and he's telling you, obey me, blessings, disobey, curses, he's going to hand you over to exactly what you desire. And the people of Israel inherently, because of their wicked hearts, desire to disobey God. They see the people in the land and they say, we want to live like they do. And so that's what God's going to do. He's going to cast them from his presence. He's going to put them into exile. The people of God are going to be separated from him. You can imagine the tension in this conversation. When Moses is talking, the people of Israel are listening to him speak, and they're just thinking, oh my goodness. And then it's like a cliffhanger, right? Because you hear, you hear, okay, so we have disgusting, dirty, evil hearts that are going to disobey God. We've been told that by Moses, who prophecies have been right so far. So this is what's going to happen. What's going to happen next? When is God going to ultimately deliver us from ourselves? So the stage is set, the lights are on, the curtain is drawn back, and Moses is about to give you the answer. This is what we're coming upon in chapter 30, verses 1 through 10. You'll see three points. I don't have any more PowerPoints, so if you keep looking up there, that's all you're going to see. But you do have a sermon slide with points on it, so you can work through it that way. And in chapter 30, the first point, as you will see on your bulletin handout, is verses 1 through 3, and I will read it aloud. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Moses doesn't miss a beat here. He picks up immediately. Okay, listen, you are going to be blessed when you obey. You're going to be cursed when you disobey. But ultimately, because of the evilness of your heart, you're going to be cast out from God. And he tells them in chapter 30, verse 1, when these things happen, when you realize What has happened? This is point number one. When you realize that our ultimate problem is our heart. When this light bulb goes off in your head, you are going to desire again to obey the Lord. When you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and you return to the Lord your God. When you obey Him. Notice this, it's it's immediately, it's chronologically linked. You see, when the people of God inherently change, when their nature changes, they will then obey God and the Lord their God will bring them to himself. But you're sitting there thinking, okay, so if the heart's the problem, what can they do about it? How can someone change their heart? They can't. They cannot do it. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? So if our ultimate problem is our heart, Moses is telling the people of Israel this. The ultimate problem is not your circumstances. The ultimate problem is not that you have a griping spouse. The ultimate problem is not that you have disobeyed God inherently. 
Because the obedience and the disobedience of Israel is flowing out of their heart. There's a source to the problem. I heard the analogy recently of, in in the Proverbs, Solomon is writing to his son and he says, he calls the heart the spring of your life. If the works of our life are the stream of our life and the spring is polluted, we have a serious issue. It's not as if pollutants are getting thrown into the water along the way. We are inherently evil and sinful. Jesus agreed with this. He says in Luke 6, Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored in his heart. One of the top biblical counselors in the country right now, Paul David Tripp, he, he says this, whatever rules the heart will exercise inescapable influence over a person's life and their behavior. So when you're talking to someone, when you are counseling someone, when you are discipling someone and they can't figure it out, they, their actions keep reverting back to where, they're going, to back to where they were, we have almost no reason to be frustrated with them because we know that inherent, their problem is their heart. This is what needs to be solved. We, we, can, we can counsel people, we can set boundaries, we can do all that we can to change someone's actions, to change someone's attitude, to change how they live their life, but ultimately in the end, all of these changes will be temporary because we will always inescapably revert back to living out of our evil hearts. This is a lot of bad news all at one time. (laughs) But there's good news, because this is what Moses is ultimately pointing forward to. If the ultimate problem is in our hearts, point number two, our ultimate hope is in Christ. Our ultimate hope is in Christ. In verses 4 through 6 of Deuteronomy 30, If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Notice what's happening here. The people are outcast from God. He has shown them what has to happen, what needs to change for them to be in right relationship with God. They need to have a change of heart that they will then obey the Lord their God ultimately forever. Now he's showing us how this is going to happen. In verse 4, as the outcasts are, they are so far from God, to the uttermost parts of heaven, the Lord your God will gather you. From there he will take you. God is the one taking initiative here. He is gathering the people of God to himself. Most of us have read the promise of Abraham at this point, right? The the people of Israel know Genesis, Exodus, they they know all this. They've, They've lived it. The promise to Abraham was that the people of God would be as numerous as the stars, This is what Moses is pointing to here in verse 5. The Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than 
your fathers. He's saying this is going to get really big because God's going to gather a lot of rebellious people to himself. This is the plan of God. And when he gathers them to himself, in verse 6, we see how God is going to change us. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. He's pointing back to that verse in chapter 6 that we read, the heart of God. God is going to conform our hearts to be more like his But he uses this word circumcised. Why does he use that word? Because they are currently living in the old covenant, right? If you've read through the Old Testament, you know the people of God were circumcised in the flesh to show that they were of God, that they were of the nation of Israel. But ultimately, this didn't save them because inherently in their heart, they were still evil. The prophet Ezekiel says it like this concerning this new covenant, this circumcision of the heart. He says this, For I will take you out of the nations. Sounds familiar? I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of stone I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. Moses is pointing forward. This is what's going to happen. God is going to circumcise your hearts. He's going to change you inherently. This becomes getting more fleshed out in the book of Ezekiel where Ezekiel says he's going to do it by putting a new spirit inside of you. God is going to work in the lives of his people. How's he going to do that? The point number two is a spoiler. Through Christ. This is how this happens. Christ has come to earth, God of very God. He has lived the life that you and I could not live. He has died the death that we deserved. And he rose from the grave. And when he ascended, he promised that he would send us His spirit. And this spirit comes into us and changes our very hearts through faith. This is the gospel. The Apostle Paul writes this. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, when Jesus came is what he's saying, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You might be thinking, Chandler, if the Holy Spirit is the one who, who gives us this new heart, why is point number two not the ultimate hope is in the Holy Spirit? Well, first off, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God. But Jesus is the one who sends the Holy Spirit. He's the one who is accomplishing this so that we would be brought close to the Father and that we would then obey Him. There's a chance today that you're here and and you would say that you do not follow this Jesus. If this is the case this morning, the Bible is saying that you you don't have this new heart. And I don't want you to hear this as 
judgment from me because I ultimately have an evil heart too. But what scripture is saying is that if we look to Christ and we trust in him to pay our sins and to attribute his righteousness to us, you can have this new heart as well. This can be true for you today. But perhaps, perhaps you came here today and you would say, I, I am walking with Christ. But my, my, my life is a mess. I'm still working. I'm still toiling. Things seem to be falling apart. And, and maybe if your eyes drifted down to verses 7 through 10, you're getting really discouraged at this point. Because read, I'll, I'll read verses 7 through 10, and then I'll let you know what, verse, or chat what um, point 3 is. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecute you. And you shall, again, obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you, as he took delight in your fathers. When you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. It, that does not sound exactly like my life. It doesn't sound like the world we live in. It talks about, it talks about the fruits of our ground flourishing. Mackenzie and I just playing hydrangeas, and guys, they're struggling. They're not doing great, all right? So why is the fruit of my ground not flourishing? My job is still hard. Why is the work of my hand not prospering? Why do I still love and cherish couples who love Christ who are still struggling with infertility? Why is this the case? If, if Deuteronomy here says that the fruit of our womb is going to flourish, this is the tension that we live in. And this is point number three. Our ultimate restoration is not yet. We live in between two realities. After Christ has come, he has promised his spirit that he would give us new hearts. That he would attribute his righteousness to us. But we still live in a fallen, evil disgusting world. What is going on? This is called the already, but not yet. This is the reality that we need to understand that we live in. Christ has already come. The new heart has been given by the Holy Spirit if you have trusted in Christ in faith. But this day, the day that Moses is talking about here, when all things are going to prosper, it's not, it hasn't happened yet. There, there, there's, there's a current lie sweeping across the world, mostly being exported from churches in America called the prosperity gospel. And it tells you that all of these realities are yours right now. That you're, you will not have a hard day at work anymore if you just have faith. Your hydrangeas won't die. <laughs> That's not going to happen to you. And it's a lie because what happens is we end up we end up trusting in ourselves 
And we end up looking for our ultimate restoration to happen on earth right now instead of looking forward to Christ's return. This has happened in how we live our lives, how sermons are preached, in the songs we sing. If you, if you look at a hymnal, yes, hymnals still exist, believe it or not. Our church uses them in North Carolina. If you look at a hymnal from the 1800s, about a quarter of the songs in the hymnal are about heaven, looking forward to who, what he's going to come and how he's going to restore all things. If you look in a hymnal from 1990, there's about 12 about 12 songs about heaven. What has happened? What has changed in our expectations of what the Bible says? We have started looking to our lives now and saying, my life is pretty darn great. While our brothers and our sisters in Christ or those who don't even know Christ are struggling and what we do is we turn our eyes away from them and say, all you gotta do is have faith and your life will be wonderful when what scripture says is that we have a day of ultimate restoration that we look forward to. The Apostle John in 1 John 3 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now. That's the already. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Our ultimate hope is not in Christ right now. We look forward to Christ coming back riding on the clouds. That's the day we're looking forward to. We look forward to a new heart. We look forward to fully obeying. I think this is the part of this verse that also often trips us up. Notice that every blessing that comes to the people of Israel that's described in the book of Deuteronomy comes after total and complete obedience to God. I don't know about you guys. I'm not there yet. Right? We still are struggling and waging war against our sin. I'll, I'll wrap up with this. If you'll look down the page in Deuteronomy 30, notice what, notice what Moses does next. He calls them to response. He says, here's life and here's death. If you choose to walk away from God, which you will because of the evilness of your heart, and you continue to harden your heart, and you look not to Christ, your coming Messiah as your Savior, you will die. And you will spend eternity apart from God. But there's life on this side. If you look to Christ, if you look for his righteousness to be attributed to you, because we know that it doesn't come from within us. If you look forward to the day of coming restoration, there is life. I call you to respond this morning. If you, if you don't know Christ, if you would say that I have never trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, you might have grown up in Sunday school, you might have been baptized, I don't know what it was, but if you are not currently trusting in Christ for the salvation of your sins, that can be true for you today. Trust in Christ. Talk to anyone on staff here. If you want to talk to me after, I'm happy to do that. But for those of us who are experiencing the already that John already said, if we are God's children now, what is your job other than continuing to wage war against your sin and live a life of holiness as if that wasn't enough? Here is your 
job. Look forward to Christ. In a moment, we're going to, to sing It Is Well, one of the great hymns of our faith. And it walks through every step of this that we've talked about. Christ taking on our sin, Christ's righteousness coming to us, him coming on the clouds in the day of ultimate restoration. And, and as we sing those verses, I want you to think about these verses in Revelation 21. This is going to be a reality for those of us who have trusted Christ for our salvation. Behold, the dwelling place of, man is with, of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. This is going to be true for you and I one day. If we are trusting in Christ, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Our ultimate problem is our heart. Our ultimate hope is in Christ, and our ultimate restoration is not yet. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, you are so good to your people. Though we inherently have evil hearts, you promise in your word that you will gather your people to yourself. You will give us a new heart. In Christ, you have attributed righteousness to us that we did not earn. You have taken our sin upon yourself. And you have promised that one day you will restore all things. It's to that day that we look. Thank you for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Blessed assurance
So as well, look forward to, uh, we'll probably get Chandler to do like Song of Solomon next time he's here. And <laughs> No, I'm stuck with that one, Chandler. Uh, but anyway, awesome. Thank you. Let me speak this.
prayer blessing this over you, and then you'll be dismissed. By the way, if you need prayer before you leave, we're going to have a couple of ministry teams down to my right and my left. So if a couple of the teams would uh, make your way down there, then you can receive prayer before you leave if, you, if you'd like to. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or even imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. I